Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Three famous terrorists, where are they now? In court. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist and a psychiatrist. And today we're going to be, and a forensic psychiatrist, I should say, because today we're going to be talking about these three famous terrorists who are in court, in court various stages of being pleading guilty. Uh, the first one, or well, <laughs> one is at the beginning stage, uh, Zachary Clark who is um, pleading guilty in New York to um, various uh, terrorist, encouraging people, lone wolves, to support terrorism, and this uh, terror attacks in a very detailed kind of way. Then we have uh, the Christ Church terrorist, Brenton Tarrant, who uh, is in the process of being sentenced for his massacre of 51 Muslims in New Zealand. And then we have, at the end of his trial, uh, the Manchester Arena bomber, the brother of the Manchester Arena bomber. Uh, the bomber, you know, the suicide bomber was Salman Ramadan Abidi. He was 22 years old and he um, perpetrated an attack on May 22nd in 2017. This was the concert where Ariana Grande was singing. And, you know, of course that helped to make it uh, world, known worldwide even more than it would have been just for the sheer numbers of people who were killed and injured. There were uh, 22 people who were killed plus the perpetrator. Uh, then there were over 800 people who were injured um, including people, also people who were psychologically injured, PTSD. Um, this was a bombing that took place as people were leaving the concert, and it was, it was devastating, needless to say. And in fact, it was the deadliest terrorist attack and the first suicide bombing in the UK since 7-7-2005. Those were the London bombings that 7-7 was there, 9-11. My first book, um, Coping with Terrorism, Dreams uh, Interrupted, was the book that was published for the, it was the anniversary edition, the one year anniversary edition. Uh, it was published in London for, to commemorate the 7-7 uh, bombings. So now this one was the second, uh, was the deadliest after that. So, um, 
the, of course, you know, they knew who did it right at the beginning, right? Uh, he was the bomber, the suicide bomber. But it took a while for them to do the investigations and ultimately extradite the brother, um, who is named Hashem Abidi. The attacker was Salman Ramadan Abidi. And I did a prior podcast, Harris Therapist podcast, on the Manchester bombing and Salman Ramadan Abidi. You can look that up. Uh, I put him on my couch. So now they uh, were born um, in uh, Manchester to a family of Libyan-born refugees, and they fled the UK to escape. And um, and um, they went back and forth, the two brothers, the family, the parents went back to Libya and the two brothers went back and forth. And um, Salman returned to the UK. Well, they both actually had gone back and forth. They were, they were both rescued at one time um, and brought back to the UK uh, in 2014. And um, as much as they appreciated that, right? Anyway, so uh, at the time of the bombing, um, Salman, the suicide bomber, was obviously in Manchester, and his brother was still in Libya at that, at that time. They spoke on the telephone 15 minutes before the attack, and when they did the investigation, they found that the brother was quite involved in helping Salman, in helping the suicide bomber, uh, plan and accumulate the materials and so on, um, to perpetrate this attack. So the US um, asked Libya to extradite Hashem to the UK to face trial, and that is what, is what has been happening. So he was just convicted, of, well, just sentenced, I should say, um, for a minimum of 55 years. Now, um, the, they, this is a, was considered a very big uh, victory, actually, um, for, for the UK or for the victims, the families of the victims and the victims themselves, um, because that was a very, that is a very large uh, sentence, very long sentence, and not typical. Um, and he was sentenced for the murders of 22 people. You know, it was felt that he was just as responsible uh, because he helped his older sibling, he helped Solomon plan uh, the atrocity and so on. He was convicted, he was found, quote, just as guilty, um, it was said at the trial, as his brother. And um, when they handed down the sentence, this just happened, when they handed down the sentence, uh, he refused to leave his cell at the Old Bailey. He didn't want to, he didn't want to face the music. So, which, um, and then the, the judge told the court that um, Hashem would spend at least 55 years in prison before he could even be considered for parole, and he said he may never be released. The family members gasped as the sentence was uh, announced because this was a record for a determinate prison term. Um, but because he was under the age of 21 when this attack occurred, the uh, British law forbid the 
imposition of a whole life order, meaning that there had to at least be a minimum term because then theoretically you could get um, ask, ask for parole, probably not get it in this case, but, but ask for it. Now, I actually um, went to Manchester and when I went to, to the UK to uh, collect a prize, <laughs> to receive a prize for my, my other, my second terrorism book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. And in addition to being in London and doing, you know, uh, being at the award ceremony and doing spe uh, speaking engagements and, and book signings and so on, I purposely went to Manchester and donated my book to the library there and to the two mayors. Um, they, it was said at the trial that the two brothers spent months ordering, stockpiling, and transporting deadly materials that were required for the attack. Now, Hashem was found guilty of, you know, being as guilty as his brother in March of 22 counts of murder, attempted murder, uh, encompassing the remaining injured, and conspiring to cause explosions. Now, lots of people spoke at the sentencing, and uh, including a mother of someone named Martin Hett. Uh, and she, the mother, has been on a campaign to uh, enact Martin's law to make it compulsory for every venue to, assist, to assess the risk of a terror attack. So she's, that it hasn't been enacted yet, but she is trying to make that happen. Um, and they were calling him Hashem, an absolute coward for refusing to attend court. And the mayor of Manchester, this is one of the two mayors who I gave a book to, uh, the mayor, Andy Burnham said, the attack was an act of quote, pure evil. This attack on our city and everything in it and everything it represents caused untold misery, but ultimately it failed. It was meant to divide us, but it only brought us closer together. So uh, apparently during the, there was a two day sentencing hearing, there were emotional testimonies from bereaved relatives. And you know, this is really, I mean, it took a long time for them to see this. Obviously, um, you know, Yes, they were happy that the suicide bomber was dead in the attack, but as, you know, since Hashem, the, the brother, was equally responsible, they waited a long time from, uh, from 2017 to 2020 to see him get sentenced. I mean, yes, he was in, he, he was in jail, um, but, um, but, you know, people they were waiting for the other shoe to drop. And needless to say, they are very happy that it was for such a long sentence. Now, it's interesting because, um, well, it's interesting in a lot of ways, but one of the ways it's interesting is that as, as I've been talking about, actually, in previous podcasts, uh, some previous podcasts, you know, there have been other attacks uh, in recent years in the UK, where particularly the one where the man um, was at a, a conference for people who supposedly had been rehabilitated, and then he took out or grabbed a knife and uh, and started, you know, attacking people. So there's been a whole, and there were others. I've, I've talked about some others as well, and so there has been um, a backlash against uh, authorities that 
uh, to get them to give longer sentences because a lot of these people, these terrorists who have been put in jail and sentenced to X number of years uh, have been freed after half their sentence, after they really did not serve a very long part of their sentence. And then because of the, some of them who have gone out very famously, you know, very, of course it was all over the news, that they, um, that despite, that they, even though they were paroled, they got out of jail, a prison, um, that they continued to attack. That in fact, they hadn't been de-radicalized, they still believed in jihad, and they were still bent on committing it. Well, when we come back, we will go to the next of these three um, bad boys. Uh, the, we'll talk about Zachary Clark, the one that I was mentioning who um, lives in Brooklyn. So stay tuned, you're listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show. Welcome back to The Terrorist Therapist Show where we're talking today about three famous terrorists where are they now? In court. We just talked about Hashem uh, Abidi, the brother of the uh, Manchester bomber, suicide bomber, um, who was found just as guilty, just as responsible for all the devastation. Now we're going to be talking about Zachary Clark. Now, you know the book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Well, apparently also some terrorists grow in Brooklyn. Uh, Zachary Clark, also goes by the name of, or names of Umar Kabir, Umar Shishani, and Abu Talha. <laughs> oh man, okay. Um, he shared, I'm gonna tell you the main parts, points of the story, and then I'm gonna go into it in a little more detail. So they know, um, fortunately the police and counterterrorism authorities tracked this guy down uh, before he himself committed a, an attack, although it's not really clear yet whether he was planning to commit an attack himself or just spur other people on to do it. Of course, you know, that is a crime too, to uh, spur other people to commit attacks, especially um, in the great detail that apparently Zachary was doing this. So uh, beginning in at least March 2019, he has been encouraging ISIS supporters to commit lone wolf attacks in New York City. He, um, on August 3rd of 2019, he posted, so this is an example of what he, what he like he's been posting things all over the internet. And so they, this is an example of one of the things. He started in at least March of 2019, but then they found for, as an example, on August 3rd in 2019, he posted instructions about how to conduct such an attack. So he went from uh, just encouraging, you know, lone wolves to support, who support ISIS to attack, to actually beginning to post instructions on how to do it. He posted a manual on knife attacks that said that the discomfort of stabbing someone is never, quote, never an excuse for abandoning jihad. Now, Zachary Clark is 41. Um, he posted a manual also uh, called, this is a really famous manual. You've heard me talk about this before. Make a bomb in the kitchen of your mom. Great title. 
<laughs> that, that would have been a, 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 a bestseller. I mean, it is a bestseller, quite frankly, amongst uh, lone wolves and, uh, and wannabe terrorists. Um, it's not, I don't know, if, I don't think it's going to make the New York Times bestseller list, however, but um, in, in terms of probably the amounts of downloads, um, this is a, a bestseller. So um, what, why he's in the news now is because he entered, he just entered a guilty plea to one count of attempting to provide material support or resources to a designated foreign terrorist organization. He's going to be sentenced in February, February 9th, 2021, and he faces 20 years in prison. So you have something to look forward to. <laughs> um, he, he shared guides. Uh, he shared, this is the killer. Well, yeah, literally. He shared subway maps, New York City subway maps, to tell people where exactly to attack. You know, where would be uh, prime places where there would be the most people, when the most people would likely be there, uh, which places are the easiest to, um, to attack, and so on. Um, the, by the way, the Make a Bomb in the Kitchen of Your Mom was an Al-Qaeda publication. Um, so Zachary Clark was arrested in November and now he finally entered a guilty plea. And um, he put on, you know, there are pictures of some of the images that he posted. They're basically ISIS images that you can find on the internet, particularly certain um, sites uh, where, you know, ISIS goes, you know, to post, uh, to try to, to, um, get people to join them. And, you know, let me say, um, this is an important fact. This is not just about Zachary Clark or, you know, in general, I do want to make mention of the fact that during the lockdowns for coronavirus, um, this has been a time when more people, of course, have had time on their hands. And many of us have been using that time on the internet. Not that hopefully many of us have been, um, going to ISIS chat rooms or, you know, encrypted kinds of uh, sites and so on. But, but more people, this is quite a danger. This is something that we are going to, the seeds are being sown now. And we are going to see, um, <laughs> what's that, the, something coming home to roost, <laughs> the rooster's coming home to roost. <laughs> We're going to say, I'm mixing my metaphors, I'm sorry. But anyhow, we're going to be seeing the results of these seeds being sown now, let's just say that, um, after the coronavirus, after the lockdowns are, after, you know, even more of the lockdowns are being opened and there are more people in the streets. We're going to be seeing what the, the impact of what so many people who have been studying uh, how to make a bomb in the kitchen of your mom and how to do knife attacks and so on have been learning and, um, you know, it's not going to be pretty after, you know, with the, with the um, economic problems and so on. So there are, we are likely to see uh, the results of these 
all all of this time in lockdown you know this is something that you do not hear talked about on the mainstream media i mean you don't hear you don't hear much talked about in terms of the uh, bad effects of lockdowns uh you know a, a nod is given to the fact that yes we are having psychological difficulties and so on but um and i'm trying talking about that of course in the in any kind of media that uh, i don't uh, discriminate I've been talking a lot about the psychological impact of lockdowns, but one thing that isn't being talked about is uh, this fact that ISIS and Al Qaeda are recruiting. Have this has been a great time for recruitment, and we are going to see the results of that after more people are out in the streets and can be attacked, you know, with uh, cars and with knives and. Uh, being again, once, once, when we eventually get to concerts and, and uh, other kinds of big gatherings, you know, then the possibility also again of bombs or, you know, even just on the subway, like if Zachary Clark had his way. So he um, has pledged allegiance to ISIS. There is a video to that effect. Uh, he, he has posted, he's posted calls for attacks on the public and institutions in New York in pro-ISIS chat rooms. In other words, he's been encouraging people, giving people ideas as to where to attack, not only in the subway, but also um, uh, you know, public institutions, public places, institutions, and so on. I mean, I mean public buildings, I want to say. Um, the Joint Terrorism Task Force was very helpful in discovering this. And um, he first pledged allegiance to, the, to ISIS in July 2019, when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was the leader, and then again in October 2019, after Baghdadi was killed. You know, that uh, Baghdadi became a martyr, of course, when he was killed. And, um, and as I was saying before, beginning in at least March 2019, he encouraged ISIS supporters to commit these lone wolf attacks. Um, he he taught he he not only told them how to make a bomb, but he told people how to select an attack target, how to conduct pre-operational surveillance, how to conduct operational planning and how to avoid attracting law enforcement attention when preparing to uh, conduct this attack. He distributed a manual that was called Life Attacks, and that's what I told you about before, where it helps people to get over it, <laughs> get over the discomfort of plunging a sharp object into another person's flesh. You know, the thought, it, it says, quote, the thought of plunging a sharp object into another person's flesh is never an excuse for abandoning jihad. <laughs> No, in fact, the people actually, it's funny that it says that because the people who get recruited um, aren't, you know, squeamish about uh, the idea of plunging a knife into a person. I mean, in, in part, that's what attracts them to it. Um, and then also, um, it ta he talked about in this manual, the manual talks about that knives, um, aren't the only weapons for uh, inflicting harm about the, on, upon the kafar, the non-believers, but knives are w widely available. They say the same thing about cars, um, that cars are widely available. Um, 
Now, he can get a maximum sentence of 20 years. And I want to read what the police commissioner said, because this is, again, a super important thing to remember, which, again, is not being talked about in the mainstream media. Uh, this whole thing about defund the police, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, hello. <laughs> what about when there are terrorist attacks? Not only, it's not only about calling 911 and getting nobody to answer, but what about when there are terror attacks and there are no police to come to everybody's assistance and to try to stop the attacker? So the police commissioner, Dermot Shea, said, quote, the defendant, by trying to support a designated foreign terrorist organization, represents the way New York City remains a top terrorist target. I commend the work of the NYPD investigators, the FBI agents, and the prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District in bringing this case. So we will uh, see more of Zachary Clark, uh, particularly by February 9th, 2021, when he is, um, well, that's when he will be sentenced, actually, uh, on that date. So yes, that's right, because he pled guilty and, you know, in the hopes of getting a, a lower sentence, and that's when he's going to be sentenced. So there will presumably be a, a sentencing hearing in any case at that time. So set your calendar is February 9th, 2021. Okay, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the third terrorist, famous terrorist, uh, Brenton Tarrant. He is the Christ Church terrorist. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the terrorist therapist show where we're talking today about three famous terrorists. Where are they now? In court. The third terrorist we're going to talk about today is Brendan Tarrant. He is the Christ Church Massacre terrorist. And um, he is, has been in uh, a trial. In Well, he is, has been in a sentencing hearing. And um, they had lots of people, 90 of his victims or his, um, or family members of his victims, who are also victims in a sense, um, have been speaking in court uh, regarding his, you know, gi giving their testimony about uh, how horrible he is uh, so that he will get a very bad sentence, a very harsh sentence. So um, he He's been having a week-long sentencing. We are at the end of it. I will update the description of this show um, to when it comes out what a sentence actually is. But there are some interesting things that have just come out that are worth talking about on their own today. Um, first of all, he was supposed to testify himself. He's 29 years old, just as a reminder. He's 29 years old. Um, the massacre happened in March 2019, and he was supposed to speak in his own defense after all these uh, victims spoke, and he decided not to. Instead, he's going to be uh, preparing a written statement that's going to be read out by a court lawyer. And um, he is not going to say a word in regard to his sentencing. You know, why is that? Why, why do people, why do terrorists sometimes do that? Um, because 
you know, they have different reasons. Uh, he, he is being called a coward. The, uh, the people, the victims, you know, are very angry that he's not going to be saying anything. And he's being called a coward, just like uh, Hashem is being called a coward for not coming to court when the sentence was read out. Now, why do they do that? You know, in part, it is because they're cowards, quite frankly. Um, in part, it's to live in denial, uh, to not be shamed, and perhaps also in some sick way, it's to keep a sense of pride, you know, to not be ashamed or to not be um, punished uh, for what they believe are valiant acts. Jihad is a, is a valiant act. So they do not want to be there when the punishment is read out because uh, they are, you know, they want to be martyrs and they don't want to feel, they don't want their name to be smeared by these punishments. And yes, of course they know that, you know, they're going to be sentenced. There is going to be a sentence, but they don't want to have to literally face it. Um, and, you know, also they don't want the pictures, of course. Well, in this case, um, there, there aren't always pictures, but they don't want the people to see them, to see them suffer, to see them be sad when they hear how many years they're going to get in prison. So it's a, it's a misplaced sense of pride. Um, now, some of the interesting things that have come out in the trial that I thought were worth talking about uh, uh, today, even though I may do a, a future podcast talking about his uh, the manifesto that he puts out. You know what? Well, he had put out a manifesto before he did this attack, but the statement I should say um, that is going to be read in the court before his sentencing, it may be worth doing a podcast just about that and, and so on. But we'll see. But right now, let me tell you about some interesting things. Um, we know that he live streamed the massacre. Uh, 51 people were killed. He live streamed it on Facebook when it occurred in March 2019. But now it came out in court that he used a drone to spy on one of the two New Zealand mosques he attacked. This was just revealed by prosecutors. You know, they were bringing this out because it's a sentencing hearing. So they want to bring out all the bad things, you know, the worst things that they can find about, um, about him. I mean, there's no question he was guilty. So this is a very disturbing picture, the idea that he used drones to spy on the church because it shows how much planning and surveillance he did um, before he murdered all of these people. And, you know, these 51 people, and included small children, uh, and this was, a, as you may well remember, he uh, attacked these mosques, he was trying to attack Muslims, and um, the youngest, uh, who was murdered was three years old. Um, so as I think I said, he is 29 years old. He's an Australian national. Um, he flew a hobby drone over Christchurch's Al Noor Mosque two months before the attacks. He was studying the entry and exit points. Uh, he slaughtered 44 people in and around the Al Noor Mosque with a uh, AR-15 rifle, and then he went on to a second mosque, mosque named Linwood, and he killed seven people there. And then, while so that was before, that was his uh, surveillance. 
the, the, um, the drones were his surveillance and planning. But then during the live stream that he did during the shootings themselves, um, he used a GoPro camera attached to his helmet, posted it on Facebook as it was happening live. Um, it was broadcast for 17 minutes before they somehow, someone uh, notified Facebook or Facebook took it down. It took 17 minutes. So a lot was, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> A lot of killing on camera on Facebook. And then he was on his way to a third mosque when the police finally caught him. So he has pled guilty to 51 counts of murder, 40 counts of attempted murder, and one count of terrorism. His manifesto, as you may recall, was called The Great Replacement. And that's what he posted before the attack. And then um, during the testimony from his victims, and which were really, really moving um, testimony, really, uh, oh, really showing the, the, the depth of their grief. Um, he showed no emotion. Now this March 15th, 2019 attack was the worst in New Zealand's history. And after the attack, Prime Minister uh, Adern was able to get a new gun control law passed and in just 12 days. And so now there's gun control in New Zealand of some sort, of some degree. I think uh, she had wanted to get more passed than they did actually pass, but she got something. Um, now New Zealand has abolished the death penalty in 1961, and they haven't handed out this sentence or even since then, they, they abolished the death penalty. And then since then, they haven't handed out the harshest possible sentence after the death penalty, uh, which is life in prison without the possibility of parole. So everyone is kind of very interested to see uh, just how severe the sentence is going to be. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have a feeling that it's going to be very, you know, surprisingly harsh, just like what Hashem was given in the UK, because people are sick and tired of, of terrorists getting out and committing more attacks. Um, at the time of, on the day of the uh, attack, he texted family members at 1.31 p.m. local time to tell them of his plans. But it's still not clear, apparently, whether his family members tried to warn police. I mean, this is pretty, pretty shocking that, um, that after, I mean, this happened in, as I said, March, 2019. So it is over a year ago, almost a year and a half ago. Um, and they still haven't been able to get the families to admit or to that they, well, I mean, I don't know, to, 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 they still haven't clarified whether or not, uh, I mean, I guess going through police uh, documents or whatever, it's just surprising that the investigation didn't turn that up. I mean, probably, you know, that speaks to the fact that they did not warn police. I mean, if, if they had, well, let's put it this way, if they had warned police, the investigators would have been able to find evidence of them having warned police. I mean, typically family members don't warn police that they're family member is about to commit a terror attack. Um, he also, not only did he fly uh, drones above the first mosque, 
but he also studied the layout of the mosques on the internet. He looked at interior photos. Um, he tried to determine an important day for Muslims when the mosques would be most busy. Um, and although his Facebook and Twitter pages, which were taken down after the attack, uh, I guess screenshots or, or what the prosecutors um, found, showed that he frequently posted anti-immigrant news articles and said that his goal of his attack was to make Muslims in places like New Zealand terrified. Well, he did that. Um, now, New Zealand, interesting, New Zealand um, actually banned distribution of Tarrant's manifesto, as well as the viewing of his live stream. And there are tight restrictions on what journalists can report during this trial, which, you know, they, the idea is that um, if you limit publicity, uh, they was trying to ensure that he got a fair trial, even though he was a horrible terrorist who killed all of these people. But um, I'm not really quite sure how they can ban the distribution unless, I mean, certainly in print, but, but if you can find, I'm sure it's still on the internet somewhere. So I'm not sure exactly, you know, um, unless they were referring to the media uh, distributing it. You know, there was a lot of, even at the time, there was a lot of uh, closeout of the media. They were trying to get the media to not report a report about the attack, or at least report a lot of the details. So that could well be what what this is in regard to. In any case, we will be finding out very soon what his sentence is, and um, it is good that the prosecutors were able to bring out some of the things like this drone. This drone uh, preparation planning is going to be very important in terms of uh, contributing to a harsh sentence because it's not like he woke up one morning and decided to do this. Uh, an impulse, you know, he couldn't control his impulses. This was for about two months at least that he had been planning this, at least, because that's when the drones went over the church, the, the mosque, I mean, in Christ Church. Well, okay. Now we know where these three famous um, terrorists are. We will follow them um, as more happens. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carroll, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.